Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of, book of 1 Peter chapter 2, as we read verses 11 through verse 15. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, give us the heart and mind of people who are in this world, but not of this world. Help us to live in this place and yet not to so love it that we forget our true home, which is with you. Send your spirit to help us to know and believe it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was working on my on this sermon, one of the things that struck me was that this is really a long series of commands. Um, this section of Peter's letter is knee-deep in application, and it struck me just how unhealthy it can be sometimes the way that we preach through books, sometimes a few verses at a time. Because when the book of First Peter would have first been delivered to the church, uh, wherever Peter wrote it to, uh, whenever that letter was first written and delivered, it would have just been read in its entirety. You wouldn't have this reading five verses tonight, reading three verses tonight, reading seven verses tonight, or anything like that. You would just read the whole letter at once. And so as, as you, you look at this passage, one of the things that, that you realize is that, wow, if you only read tonight's passage by itself, I think, and if I preached only these verses, and I didn't mention to you the rest of the letter and the rest of the context, I really believe that you would leave this place probably saying, the Bible is a book about how important it is for me to get cleaned up and how to be a good person. And any time that you preach on morality and you preach on ethics and you preach on the imperatives of the gospel, the things that God calls us to do in the gospel, and you leave off the indicatives, that is, all the things that God says he's done for us, you, you have a sermon that is moralistic. And moralism is a very serious and awful threat to the true gospel. Moralism is a deep and serious threat to churches today. Because it is so easy, it is so natural to simply focus on the external stuff, focus on the way people are living, focus on the things that we ought to be doing. Stop doing that. Start doing this. 
Stop lying. Don't call names. The sort of things we can fall into with our children. We do this with our children whenever we focus on their behavior and we don't focus on their hearts. Moralism says that the greatest priority for Christians is being good people, cleaning up our act, and making sure that we have a good reputation. And that's why it's very important for us to remember what has come before. Because when the letter of 1 Peter was read in the church, as I mentioned before, they read the entire thing. And so what would we have seen from all that's come before if we read the entire letter up to this point? Well, remember, Peter says God sent his son into the world to die for people so that they could be born again by the spirit to a living hope. And because he's done that, he says, we can endure trials and we can endure sufferings. So the majority of what has come before up to this point in the letter has been Peter describing what God has done for us. So there is no mistaking Peter's letter as a moralistic, therapeutic letter. His his goal here is not primarily, first and foremost, behavior modification. It's not making his readers into good people. That comes later. His goal is far deeper. He spends all of this time convincing us that all the hard work of translating us from natives to this land into strangers in this land has been done entirely and completely by God. Everything has been done by him. And so here we are now. Peter has called us to live holy lives because God made us strangers here. But what does it look like to live as strangers? And the short answer is holiness. That's the really short answer. Being holy is what it looks like to live as a stranger and an outcast in this place. And so the reality is the things that Peter calls us to here are not just commands. They are gospel commands. They are for those who are in Christ. Peter is not calling us to reform our lives and become these sorts of people just because it's the right thing to do. He calls us to do this because of what Jesus has done in us and through us, through his spirit. And so tonight, Peter goes deeper into this. What does it look like to live as a stranger in the land? And in particular, he corrects a misunderstanding. So the the misunderstanding is this. If we live in this place, if we really are strangers, if we really are sojourners, that is just somebody who's passing through, if we're really strangers and sojourners here, does that mean that these men are not our leaders? That these, these presidents, in our case, the presidents, governors, mayors, does that mean that they're not really our leaders? Does it mean that we don't have to submit to rulers? Can we just pull our heavenly green card every time we hear uh, a, a world leader announce something we don't like? And Peter's answer is no. Living as a stranger means taking the world around us seriously. It means that we're not disconnected from the politics of our day. We're not separated from it. It means that we're still knee deep in all of it. And I think that what he does here this evening is he gives us three encouragements. First, he encourages us to be the honorable man. Second, he encourages us to be the submissive man. And third, he encourages us to be the free man. The honorable man, the submissive man, 
and the free man. And Peter says, we should be all three. And he talks about what that means to be that way. So first he says we should behave honorably. We should be the honorable man. In verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, honor, it seems to me that honor is a word that has fallen out of step with the times. It's almost entirely missing in the public arena. Even in politics now, people are more interested in a politician who gets things done than a politician who's honorable, right? We don't even talk much about virtue or honor because we don't expect it of anybody. And it's certainly not of those who hold public office. Um, Honor, generally speaking, though, has a public meaning. To honor something is to recognize it. It's to give it respect. It's to recognize that it's worthy of respect. Now, now for Christians, honor is something that we give regardless of worth. We honor the government, as we're going to see in a moment, regardless of whether we think the government is worthy of honor. Church members take vows before God. They'll honor the officers of the church. That's in our vows. And those are, those are vows that are made regardless of whether, those, whether honor is deserved. Um, those vows exist precisely because there are times when we don't feel like honoring those in authority over us. Those vows exist precisely for the moments that we don't want to honor someone. And the reality is we don't get to choose who and what and when to show honor over to those who God has placed over us. Now, this is not just a generic call to honorable living, though. It's very specific in a certain context. He says we should always live honorable lives. But Peter is concerned here about how we live among the Gentiles. That's really his context. And and I think if you could just summarize what Peter says here, he's saying we live in a glass house. Christians live in a glass house. People are watching us. People are looking to see how we live. People are watching to see how we treat one another. People are watching to see how we treat our neighbors. Peter knows that we, that we live out in the world. We don't withdraw from it. And, and how we live among people who aren't Christians is so important. To Peter, it matters the way that we live before Gentiles. The integrity that we live with matters. And it communicates something about our God. And it communicates something about our Savior. The way we live out there when we're not in here. When Peter says to behave honorably among Gentiles, he means that we should live in a way that the Gentiles, who, by the way, according to Scripture, do know right from wrong. And they do in their hearts know what God requires of them. Now, he also tells us that they suppress the truth. And yet the reality is they have the truth. So the idea here is the Gentiles should look at us and they may not like us, but they'll have to admit that that we live in a way that deserves their respect, even if they don't like our message. All right. Just because we live a certain way doesn't mean it's going to convert them. It means that they're going to have to reluctantly acknowledge that we live with integrity. He says, keep your conduct among them honorable For a purpose, he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, he says here, when they speak evil against you, right, when they speak against you as evildoers, his assumption is 
they're going to trash talk us as Christians no matter what. People will always find ways to slander and speak badly of Christians. In the early church, one of the slanders was they were incestuous. The the charge of incest was laid at Christians because they called one another brother and sister. A man would even call his wife sister. Uh, Now, we don't particularly do that. We don't speak that way. And that's how Christians talked. And they were charged as being cannibals, right? Because they would drink the eat the body and drink the blood of a man. And if you read early uh, writings from secular authorities, one of the things that's clear is that that is the word that has gotten around. They're incestuous and they're cannibals. So they'll always find something to charge us with. They will always find ways and reasons to trash talk us as Christians. The question is, will they have any claims against us that stick? Will they have any claims against us that are true? Are any of the claims they make against us legitimate? And Peter's answer is, we should certainly hope not. Now, I find this interesting. Peter knows that even Gentiles have a sense of honor. Even people without God's word have been pressed upon by God and his standards and his demands. Uh, One of the places you see that so clearly is if you read some of the philosophers from Roman times, Cicero, for example. Cicero is extraordinary because he's one of the earliest natural law philosophers. And what that means is that Cicero taught right and wrong. This wasn't a Christian. This wasn't a religious man. And yet Cicero is one of the great exponents of the times who really teaches, hey, look, we may not be followers of God, and yet somehow we do know there's something right and something wrong in the world around us. Um. We should talk, though, about, for a moment about what Peter says. The Gentiles, will our conduct among them be honorable? One of the frightening things happening right now, and certainly that has happened in the last couple of months, is that it turns out many Protestant churches, and in particular, I'm thinking most about Baptist churches, uh, have failed to protect the children in their midst. And what we're finding out now, 20 25 years after the fact, is that many of them failed to protect the children in their churches. And we're only finding this out now because they're being called out. And they're not being called out by other churches. They're not being called out by uh, their own body. But instead, they're being called out by secular publications and newspapers. The Houston Chronicle, just a few weeks ago, ran a lengthy story about hundreds of Individual predators in Southern Baptist churches over the course of about 20 years. And many of those predators were caught and turned over to the authorities, thankfully. But the sad reality is some of them continued serving in churches for years. And some, when the the article was written, were still serving in churches. Why is that? Well, part of the reason is because... People never thought it would happen in their church, so they never planned for it. They thought that it would be embarrassing if they were proactive and if they looked into how to protect the little ones in the church. And so they just didn't because they were embarrassed to broach the subject. And then the churches, because they didn't plan for these sort of things, they scrambled and they made up solutions on the fly. And the result was these sort of horrible situations where cover-ups happened. And what's sad in this situation is the church is being called out by the secular people. 
by people who don't know God, by people who don't follow his word. We are in a situation now where churches are being taught how to take care of their children rather than being the trendsetters and showing the world this is how you protect children. The church is being taught by the Gentiles. In other words, exactly what Peter says, keep your conduct, conduct among the Gentiles honorable has not been, been followed in this particular instance. And so when we don't keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, as Peter tells us to do, shame is brought upon the church and shame is brought upon the gospel. And even unbelievers know when the church fails on points when it ought to have acted and ought to have done what is right. So first, Peter says, part of living as a stranger in this world is determining that whatever happens, whatever we do, we will live in a way that even unbelievers would look at us and they would look at their lives and they would say, I may not like what they teach, but they do live honorably. We should strive for that. Second, Peter says we should submit as a servant, the submissive man. He calls us to be the submissive man. Look at the command again in verses 13 through 15. This, is a, this passage, along with Romans chapter 13, is one of the clearest passages about our attitude toward the government. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter says, be subject. To be subject is to be under the authority of someone. Peter says this is true of every human institution. And in these verses, he focuses on government. Um, Paul's point in Romans 13 was that every government, even a bad government, is put in place by God and we should be subject to it. Justin Martyr was an early Christian writer and he defended the faith in public. And one of the claims that Justin Martyr raised was he said to the authorities, he said, look at the Christians who live in the Roman Empire they are the best citizens. They pay their taxes. They don't kill their children. They are hard workers. They don't rebel against the government. They really are exemplary citizens. And Justin Martyr was very clear to point, to point that out. And the point Justin, was made, Justin made was that the church was endeavoring to do just what Peter says here. We are good citizens because we aren't revolutionaries. The government may hear from us as citizens... But the Bible doesn't give us a command or a game plan for grabbing power. The New Testament writers don't even envision such a scenario. One of the ways we see this play out so beautifully, I think, is currently what's happening in China. It is horrible what's happening to the Chinese church. They're being taken. They're being captured. They're being arrested. They're being, many of them are being put in solitary confinement for months at a time. Who knows when they'll be released? But one of the things that happened was the Chinese leaders made a concerted decision last year. They said, our mission in China is to make disciples of Jesus. Our mission is not social or government change. Our interest is not in taking over the government. Instead, they said their plan was we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And so what Peter calls us to here is submission and 
what the Chinese are showing us is that submission is no easy task. It wasn't easy in the first century because in the first century, people were called on to by the government to bow down to statues. They were called to worship the emperor. And in future years, people were told, you will go and you will make an offering to the gods. And if you will not, you will be arrested. They were called to participate in these cultic rituals because for the Romans, this was just a part of everyday life. And so when Peter calls them to submit, he isn't telling them to do the evil things the government requires. What he is doing is he's calling them to do something even more difficult. He's calling on them to face the consequences if we must disobey. Just to give you an example, and I've probably used this example before, but it's a, I think it's a non-contestable example. Someday, if the government comes to me and says, Pastor Parker, you must perform a wedding for two men. I will go to prison before I obey that. I'll go to prison. I'll spend time in jail or execute or whatever crazy stuff they decide they want to do. That is my way of submitting to the authorities, just like Peter and just like Paul call us to do, and yet at the same time keeping my integrity. And you can think of all the examples of the ways that you would have to do the same. Uh, anytime you get called on by anyone, a government, someone in authority, to do something that's wrong, you disobey and you face the consequences. That is your way of submitting to them, even as your authority. And one of these Chinese pastors, he was speaking late last year, and he said this after a bunch of church leaders and lay leaders were thrown into prison. This is what he said. He said, the situation is tense, but we know God is on the move in spite of the restrictions. We held a regional leaders meeting, which I think means presbytery meeting. We held a regional leaders meeting, and we agreed that when one of us is arrested, another will pick up the work. We also decided to respond to the police respectfully and in love, even if they yell at us or use physical force in attempts to make us surrender the names of other believers. So you see, they don't give the names of the believers, but they also know there's a consequence for this. We're going to have to pay a price. We're going to be thrown into prison. And there may come a day like this for us. It may be decades from now. It may be centuries from now. Who knows? Maybe the Constitution will still hold up 200 years from now. Who knows? But the day may come where the government commands us to break God's law. And in that moment, we disobey, but we submit. We disobey, but we face the punishment that may come. We are not revolutionaries. We are not a threat to God-ordained leaders. This is exactly what the Chinese Christians are telling the government. And it's exactly what Peter is calling us to. And it is not an easy calling. It's much easier to stand up and defend ourselves. Remember what drives Peter. You see, you see it again in verse 15. His motivation here is the same as it was in the previous point. Peter is concerned that we live in such a way that we don't give ammunition to the watching world. He says, by doing, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. They will criticize us, says Peter. And they will speak against us, but will there be any truth to the things they say? That is completely up to us. It's absolutely in our control. It's not in our control what they'll say. 
It is in our control whether what they will say is true or not. First, Peter says, behave honorably. Second, as we just saw, he says, submit as a servant. Finally, though, Peter says we should live freely. We should be the free man. In verse 16, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. What does Peter mean? What does a free life look like? Martin Luther spoke of this. He said, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. So in other words, Luther says we're, we're, we are free of enslavement that promotes evil. And instead, we use our freedom for the good of serving our neighbors and obeying God. Um, one of the, if you're looking for a picture of what's being said, maybe you find that confusing. How can I be free and subject at the same time? One of the, the most beautiful pictures I can think of is, is a passage we actually have read already in the book of Acts. You may remember that night when Paul is in prison in Philippi and there is the earthquake and the, the doors of the prison open and the chains fall off of Paul and his companions. And in that moment, Paul and his companions could have fled out of the prison. The jailer expected it. He thought that they had. He was ready to die. And yet with the chains off and the prison doors open, what does Paul do? He remains willingly in this place. So in a sense, he has this attitude. He says, I'm perfectly free, but I'm going to use my freedom to remain in these chains and to minister to this jailer. You think of the the beauty of what Paul illustrates for us in that moment where he says, I'm free, and yet now I'm going to stay here. And the result of that was that very night the jailer came to faith in Jesus. Living as people who are free looks like an obedient life lived under God, but never afraid because the chains are off. It's like we're in the prison cell and we have the chains on and yet they're not latched. We could leave anytime we want. We're perfectly free and yet we're here because this is the right thing to do. This is the right place for me to be. I'm here serving, giving of myself, even though I don't have to. I think Paul makes a statement along these lines at the beginning of or Peter makes a statement in verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's what's so interesting. Peter is, is painting one picture of what living life as a free person really looks like. The world around says, if you organize your life around God, and saying no to sin, you're trapped and you're living in bondage. And the world looks at the life of the Christian and the person who lives God's way. And they, and they say, how pitiful, how sad. You're constrained, you're trapped. And the world thinks they're free. They think the, the stuff they're doing and the way they live makes them free. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if any of you listen to Billy Joel. Uh, but when I was a teenager, I loved Billy Joel. Oh man, I had... Three volume greatest hits of Billy Joel on CD. That's how old I am. I had a CD. And, <laughs> and uh, 
And he had this song, and if you like Billy Joel or you know Billy Joel, you know the song. It's called Only the Good Die Young. And the song is all about Billy as this, uh, uh, I don't know a good word for this, enthusiastic teenage boy uh, pressing on this Catholic schoolgirl, trying to get her to get physical with him. And the song is him pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to talk her into this. And he has this section in the song. And, and just so you know, this is not an approving quotation. It says, They showed you a statue, told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. Oh, but they never told you the price that you'd pay for things that you might have done. Only the good die young. It is truly, I don't want to overstate this. I don't know if I can overstate this. One of the most evil songs. Just villainous, wretched songs. And uh, it's, it's, it's a gross song. Even though it's catchy and that's the way the world works. Uh, but he is one of the true villains of musical history, this guy is. And he makes these statements throughout the song, taunting her and telling her that saving herself for marriage is being locked away, right? This is a prison you've put yourself in. See, Billy in this song thinks that true freedom comes from going outside of God's will. He says, you'll never be free until you do what God says no to. And he doesn't see that he's the one in chains. Sin is bondage. Righteousness is freedom. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I think this is so interesting. The passions of your flesh wage war against your soul. Peter identifies our passions for what they are. He says, they're not your friend, they're your enemies. The worst urges within us are not our friends. They are not things to be befriended. They, they tell us they're here to help us. They tell us they're here to please us. But our urges and our passions are actually out to get us. They wage an internal war of sabotage against you and me every single day, Peter says. Our life, our soul is constantly under assault. And it is not our friend that is attacking us. It is our enemy. And not only that, but, but to lead Peter's larger point, sin destroys our witness. Our passions make it difficult for us to conduct ourselves honorably. You see, the passions of the flesh don't help us. They, they don't free us. They imprison us. The reality is here tonight, as we look at what Peter says here, the more that we live after our own urges and our own desires, the harder it is for us to live honorably among unbelievers. The harder we'll find it to be subject for the Lord's sake to the human institutions God has put into place around us. No, says Peter, at the deepest level, you may have a part of you that wants to start a revolution and wants to throw open the gates, wants to rip off the chains and run, but the slow, patient, wise work of living as free people who show our integrity by staying in the cell and loving our fellow man and living honorably is the greatest witness that we could possibly present. And by God's grace and with the Spirit's help, He will help us to do it. Let's pray.
Lord, uh, obedience does not come naturally to us. Submission to authority often is not our greatest delight. And yet, Lord, would you give your people here a love for you, a love for your reputation, a love for your glory that is greater than our love of self? Would you make us a people who bit by bit from the heart lift so that the mouths of your critics really can be shut? And so that when the world watches us, they really do see honorable conduct and the sort of submission that pleases you in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.